0: So we're on the road to Holy Week, to Easter, and we're in a season called Lent, which is the weeks before Easter, where we begin to turn our hearts and our minds towards the death and resurrection of Christ. And in our passage this morning, in John chapter 14, we're in the middle of Holy Week, where Jesus has gathered his disciples for what we now call the Last Supper. And the Last Supper is on Thursday night of Holy Week, and Jesus gathers his disciples to celebrate the Passover like they had done since they were little boys. And their family had gone through the same ceremony that Jews still today go through at this Passover meal. They read the same passages, they ask questions, they have answers, they sing the same songs. And in the middle of this meal, Jesus says, I want to do something a little bit different. Because coming up the following day, Jesus was going to be crucified and he was going to die. And he says, And I'm going away. And before I do, there's a few things I want you to know. So Jesus has this opportunity at this dinner to tell his disciples the last things that he'll tell them before he dies. And the Gospel of John, which we've been studying, is organized really differently than the other Gospels. The other Gospels are arranged pretty much in chronological order for Jesus' life. And they start in his childhood, or they start when he comes and he's baptized, and they go through, and they're pretty evenly spaced between his ministry and his death. But John was written after the other Gospels, and so he knows that you probably know most of what's in those Gospels, but he wants to say something a little bit different. He wants to focus in on some of those moments and draw out a little bit more about what Jesus was saying. And so what John does is by the time you get to chapter 13 of John, it's all a span of about 16 hours, the last hours of Jesus' life. So from chapter 13 all the way through to the end of 17 is this long discussion he has with his disciples. This is what I want you to know before I go away. So in the beginning, Jesus Jesus says something that should strike us as a little bit odd. If you're looking at John chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Now think about this. Who's about to die here? Jesus. (laughs) The disciples are actually not going to have a hand laid on them in this whole process. Peter, of course, is going to deny Christ when the the pressure gets turned up a little bit. A little girl at a fire pit says, Don't you know Jesus? And Peter's like, I've never even met the guy before. Jesus is the one who's about to die. He's about to go through a gruesome death. He's about to be crucified in front of everyone, and he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Isn't this an amazing insight into the character of Jesus? In the, preparing for the worst moment of his life, what is he thinking about? I don't want you guys to be afraid. I don't want you to have any questions that are unanswered. I don't want you to have any moment where you're unaware of what's happening and what's going to come after I die. So our question this morning is, how, staring Jesus' death right in the face, can he say, do not be afraid? This is actually the most common promise in the Bible. Do not be afraid. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not lose faith. He says, don't don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And in our passage this morning, there's three things I want you to know that Jesus says to his disciples to make sure that their hearts are not troubled. So let's look at the first one. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? I go and prepare a place for you, and I'm coming again to take you to myself, and where I am, you may also be. See, the antidote for... For trouble is trust. So Jesus says, I don't want you to be troubled. Instead, I want you to trust. I don't want you to be afraid. I want you to have faith that I know what I'm doing. I know where I'm going. And where I'm going, you're going to come with me. As you might imagine, the disciples are like, this is so abstract. And whenever Jesus gets abstract, the disciples completely lose him. And so one of the disciples is like, We don't even know where you're going. How can we find the way? And Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth. I am the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. He wanted his disciples to know that he was preparing a place for them. What would have resonated in their minds is he had just prepared a place. Do you remember what happens before the Last Supper? He takes his disciples, he says, I want you to go into town, and I want you to ask this guy if we can use this upper room. He's already said this about a donkey as well, which we'll cover on Palm Sunday. He says, go ask this guy for this young donkey. And they're like, well, what if he says No. He's like, no, this is my donkey. He says, tell him the master needs it. And it's the same thing. They get this room ready. They're having this giant meal. They don't own this room, but everything is prepared. Jesus has prepared the place with all the special food and all the things that you need so that he can have this conversation with his disciples. He says, just like I've prepared this room, just like I've prepared this meal, I'm preparing a place for you to live forever in my Father's house. You know, in the Bible, we get some descriptions of what this house is going to be like. And sometimes we talk about them as houses. Sometimes we talk about them as mansions. This word can be translated as mansions. In my father's town or my father's house, there are many mansions. We're all going to be in McMansions when we get there to heaven. It's going to be streets paved with gold. And if you get the description of the new Jerusalem, there's brilliant stones everywhere. There's a tree of life. And there's walls around the new city of Jerusalem. And you have to ask yourself, why after God's enemies have all been defeated, after justice has been brought, after God's living with his people forever, why are there walls? <laughs> I love Jim Gaffigan as a comedian. He says, are they worried about kids coming in and using the pool or something? I mean, what's, why would you have walls in heaven, in the new Jerusalem? And it's because what Jesus is saying here, he's preparing a place and there's only one entrance to this place and it's through Jesus. There's only one door to get where we want to go to our father's house, and it's through his son, Jesus. A few months ago, Laura and I got locked out of our apartment, and there's only one door to our apartment, but there are windows. So we didn't have a key, and our key fob thing was dead, and so we're like, how are we going to get into this place? There's no back door. There's no other entrance. So what we decided to do was climb up the front of our second story thing. It It was my best American Ninja Warrior impression. Laura's like holding a ladder. I'm jumping off the ladder onto our scaffolding to try and get myself up. I was sore for weeks afterwards. But as we're standing up there, some people drove by, and one of them was like, what are you doing? And I was like, visiting some church people that haven't been coming recently. <laughs> and, she, and she like looked at me. I was like, no, 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 this is our house. This is, where, this is where we live. And it was odd because she drove by, and it's like, that's not how you get in. You don't get in through the second story window. You get in through the door. And Jesus' point here is there's only one way to get in. Remember what we talked about with the good shepherd? He says the person that hops over the side of the fence is not the person that has the sheep's best interest in mind. It's the person who goes through the door, who knows their names, who leads them out. That's the one that they're going to follow. And Jesus is making the same point here. There's only one way in. I'm going to prepare it. It's paradise for you. But you have to come in through the me. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, for a long time, they've had a tradition on Good Friday. So you have a service on Good Friday, which is a service of remembering Jesus' death. What they do at this service is they all gather outside and they chain the doors of the church shut. And the church comes in and they bang on the door and they say, they basically say, let us in. And they quote scripture saying, let us in, let us into the house of the Father. And the priest says, you can't get in because of your sin. You can't come in. And they bang on the door over and over, and the whole service is let us into the house of the Father. And the priest says, No, you can't come in. And so they all go home. And they come back on Easter morning, and the priest unlocks the doors and throws the doors open, and they all enter in to have their Easter service together because there's actually no way to open this door there's no way to get to the place prepared unless your sins have been paid for here's the question that should resonate with us when we think about heaven heaven is a perfect place our father's house is perfect it says in revelation that nobody who commits this whole long list of sins can be there it's a place of holiness and honor and glory and if you're an honest reader you should look at that and say what am i doing there how could i ever be in a place like this It's a place prepared for the people who love Christ because the only way to get there is to be cleansed, to be healed, to be forgiven, to have your sins paid for by somebody else. We say this over and over and over again. There's actually never been a sin and there never will be a sin in the history of the world that isn't paid for. It's just a question of who pays, you or Jesus. Those are the only two options. And to get through the door, to get to the place that he's preparing, they have to be paid for by Jesus. You have to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You have to have taken his perfect life in exchange for your sinful life to get where he's preparing. Now, the second thing he wants, to know, he wants them to know is one of the most famous, famous verses in, in John, which is John 14, 6. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, we recoil a little bit from this because it sounds very exclusive, And exclusivity is not something that we like as a culture. We don't like people asserting there's only one way, there's only one person, there's only one truth. That just sounds very arrogant and very abrasive in our culture to say there's one way, take it or leave it. And the reason that we think this is because we don't see the situation quite for what it is. So imagine you're in a room and there's a bunch of people in the room and it begins to fill with water. And you're looking around, and everybody's kind of getting worried, and the water's rising, and it's getting higher and higher and higher. And all of a sudden, a door opens. And you start moving to the door, and somebody says, well, that's kind of exclusive. There's only one door. You would, that would never occur to you because you would realize, in this situation, we need to get out. And there's an open door to go through. Exclusivity, as we picture it, would be like if there's five open doors and there's all kinds of great stuff behind these doors and somebody says you can only go through this one that has nothing good behind it. See, the problem people have with exclusivity is not just that there's one option, it's that they think there are other better options and they don't want you telling them this is the only option. But that's not at all how the Bible portrays what's going on. The Bible portrays that we have a sin problem that leads to death, and there's one open door. The problem with exclusivity would be if there was one closed door. But there's an open door. The only door is open. So Jesus, all through the Gospel of John, is talking about anyone who comes to me will live forever. Anybody who comes to me will eat what I give them, the bread of life, and they'll never be hungry again. It's like, if any of you guys have read the Chronicles of Narnia, any of the kids in here read the Chronicles of Narnia? Okay, one of my favorite scenes in the Chronicles of Narnia is in the silver chair. So right at the beginning of the book, Jill Pohl, who's the main character, is running away, and she is so thirsty, and she comes up to this stream, but there's a lion laying next to it. And Jill say, and, and the lion says, are you not thirsty? And Jill says, I'm dying of thirst. And the lion says, well, then Drink. And she says, would you mind going away while I drink? And the lion answered with a very low growl. And Jill gazed at his motionless bulk, and she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside at her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. And she says, would you promise to not do anything to me if I come? And he says, I can't make any promises. Jill was so thirsty now that without it, noticing, she had come a step closer. And she says, do you eat little girls? She's, and he says, I've swallowed up girls and boys, men and women, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. I didn't say this as if I were boasting, nor as if he were sorry, nor as if he were angry. He just said it. And she says, I, well, then I dare not come and drink. And the lion says, well, then you will die of thirst. And she says, oh, dear. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. And the lion says... There is no other stream. That's the decision. It's not, there's a bunch of streams, and these closed-minded bigots have said, this is the only one. The The picture presented in the Bible is, there's only one option, and anybody can come. Anybody who will come to the Savior can be healed. Anybody who comes to the Savior can be forgiven. Anybody who comes can have the bread of life and the water of life and can live with him eternally. In fact, the whole Bible is about this theme. If you go all the way back to the Old Testament, it's an invitation to all the nations to be blessed through the children of Abraham. Anybody can come. In John 6, 35, it says, I'm the bread of life. We talked a couple of weeks ago that you can eat of all these other breads, but there's only one that will give you life. In John 8, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In Isaiah 55, it's talking about the Messiah coming. It says this, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation 22, one of the last commands in the entire Bible is this. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Anybody who hears, come, and let anybody who's thirsty, come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Compared to all the other religions of the world, this is a unique thing about Christianity is there actually is no qualification for coming to Jesus other than being sinful. That's the only thing you bring is your sin. There are a lot of other religions that basically say if you live a good life and you get to the end... And there's not a running tally, so you just have to kind of think if you've done enough good things to get 51% and the scales are weighed and your life ends up being a little better than it was bad, then you can be in. And there's a lot of places that say, look inside yourself and you'll be able to find the answer within you. Christianity says, no, you could never outweigh the things that you've done. You could never find the answer in yourself. The answer is only to throw yourself upon Jesus and what he's done for you and you will be saved. We use the word gospel for a word in the Bible that is, is where we get the word evangelism or evangel. It means good news. And people actually talked about this word outside of the Bible. The Christians took this word and they gave it a new meaning. Outside of Scripture, it means the announcement of something amazing that's happened. So in Cicero, who's basically a contemporary of Paul we see him use this word to say in a letter to his friend, our friend was let off at trial. He's found not guilty. Good news, he's going free. And he used this word for gospel, evangelism, word evangel. Later, after Paul, the new emperor Vespasian, in the year 69, they had a huge war. They have four emperors, and finally one of them arrives and takes the throne. There's a new king, there's a new emperor, and they send out a gospel to the entire empire to say, good news, the king has finally come. And the Christians are saying something that is so subversive by saying, this is the gospel, this is the good news, there's a new king, an eternal king, and everybody can come to him. I've told some of you guys this. The best way I can describe this is a pronouncement of something new. The gospel is not something that you do. It's something that's been done. It's something that's been announced. We proclaim the gospel. It is news of something that Jesus did. He died. He rose from the dead. And we are spreading the news of that across the whole world. That's the gospel. And we believe in it. We trust in him. It's like when you're playing dodgeball at camp or in the summers and when we used to play it, there would be kids that would get out, and they'd have to sit forever on the sidelines. You, mean, you know this if you're not a good dodgeball player. You spend most of your time sitting watching the other kids play dodgeball. But every now and then, you'd let all of them out. And the thing that always got to me is there were these clever kids that were in, and when you let all the other kids back in, you would yell, jailbreak! And they would all run in. But if you're smart, what you would do is you'd hold your ball when you thought that there was going to be a jailbreak. And right when they get up, You just nail them, and it's like right back down. And I remember seeing this kid who was so excited. He'd been the first one out. He was getting ready to go back in. He stands up and immediately gets beamed with a dodgeball and gets back down. And I had yelled, jailbreak, and everybody got up, and then he got down. And I thought, let's just do it again. Jailbreak again! And so he gets back up again, and he gets to go out. And it's like, that's the Christian life. I hate to break this to you. In the game of life, we're not great dodgeball players, It didn't take us very long to be sat on the bench with our sin, watching the other people playing, feeling like we're not good enough, and God yells, jailbreak. That's the announcement of the gospel. Something has been done that's freed you to be back with your father again. So what Jesus wants his disciples and he wants us to know is he is the only way, but the only way is an open way. Anybody can come to the Father. Now, here's the last thing he says. Not just that he's going to his father's house, not just that he's the only way, he's got to clear up the problem that he's going to be gone. The disciples are actually very concerned about this because they're like, this is all awesome talk when Jesus is actually there. Okay, It's one thing for Jesus to say, I'm preparing a place, I'm going to die for you, that's all well and good, but then you see him hanging on the cross and he goes in the tomb and you're wondering, what are we going to do now? And in fact, the disciples have a really hard time with this. After Jesus dies, do you remember what they do? He rises from the dead, and then they don't see him for a while, and they just decide to go back to what they were doing. And Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send you help. Here's what Jesus wants you to know. He's sending help. So later in this dialogue, this that runs all the way from 14 through the end of 17, in chapter 16, Jesus says something really remarkable. The disciples are still talking about what does it mean for him to go away. And Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is good for you. It's better for you if I leave. Now, how does this make sense in any universe? It's better for them that Jesus goes away. Or you think about at the end of John, in John chapter 20, when Thomas puts his hand in the wounds and he says, Blessed are you for believing, but even more blessed are those who believe without seeing. Now, how is that possibly the case? How could it be? I mean, can you imagine how awesome it would have been when Jesus is actually there? He's multiplying bread and fish. He's feeding people. He's raising people from the dead. He's healing all these diseases. And then he says, you know what? It's going to get even better after I'm gone. That would have been a very hard thing to believe. And the disciples say, how could, how could that be? And so Jesus answers them. He says, it's better if I go away because if I go away, then I will ask the Father and he will send the helper Who will come to you. If you notice in your Bibles in verse seven of chapter sixteen, the word helper is usually capitalized, which is really a strange thing in, in the text to read the helper. And that's because the helper is a person. The third person of the Trinity, fully God, the Holy Spirit, is the helper. And what Jesus is saying is having the Holy Spirit in you is better than having the Son of God in front of you because having God in you was the way you were designed to function from the very beginning. So the helper, or the Holy Spirit, comes and fills us and completes us as we were designed to be. So think about the way that God created Adam. All the way back in Genesis 2... God speaks the world into existence, all the universe, and on the sixth day, it says in chapter two, he bends down into the dust and gathers the form of a man, and then he gets his face up right in front of him, and he breathes his breath into the man's lungs. And that's how he creates human beings. Now, the word for breath and the word for spirit are the same word. In fact, you see him, and there's sometimes a little bit of translation you have to tell by the context. Is he talking about a spirit here, or is he talking about breath here? And so it's an intentional play in Genesis 2 that he doesn't just breathe his breath into them. He breathes his spirit into them. And think about this. So when, G, when, when Adam is created, and he's got the breath of God into his lungs, his first exhale is what? What? The breath of God, the spirit of God. The way that we are created is to be so filled with the presence of God that everything that comes out of us is his word, his life, his glory. And so Adam takes that first breath and it's the breath of God and then he sins and it takes all the way for Jesus to rise from the dead for the spirit to come and restore us to that position before God again. The spirit is a teacher, a helper, a reminder. The spirit takes us and brings us to God. The Spirit puts in us what we were made to be. He teaches us what is true. He reminds us of Christ. He draws us to the Father. My favorite example of this is in Romans eight twenty six. So in this passage, he says he is a helper. And that word is used all over the Bible. God is our helper. Christ is a helper. He uses this word everywhere. But in Romans eight twenty six, Paul says something really interesting. He says, we don't know what to pray for like we should. But the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And this word is the coolest compound word. It's basically three words smashed together, and it means this. The root word means to lift something, to carry something. And then what Paul does is he slams two prefixes on there that mean together and from the other side. So the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. The Spirit lifts with us From the other side of a burden when we don't know what we need to pray, we don't know what we need to do, he comes alongside and lifts the burden with us. That's what it means to be a helper, is the Spirit actually comes along and equips us to do the things that God's called us to do when we have no power in our own to do them. And in fact, big chunks of our life, if we're following Christ, should fit that criteria. You should not be able to live the life that God has called you to live on your own power. It's impossible to do. You have to walk by the Spirit if you want to follow what God is leading you to do. So he is a teacher, he is a helper, he is a reminder, he is a guide. So as I mentioned earlier, I was on a fishing trip this weekend. It was actually a men's retreat I was speaking at, and there just happened to be fly fishing. So I thought, I'll partake in the fly fishing. And so the first day we went, one of the guys that's on this trip has grown up with a cabin. His dad owned a cabin and a fly fishing shop. And so this guy knows this river like the back of his hand. I mean, he, it's amazing to be with him. He's a pro-level guide for fly fishing. And if you've ever been, all fishing and hunting is this way, but especially fly fishing, it takes you forever just to actually get to where you can do any fishing. I mean, you gotta get there, you park a long ways away, you gotta get your waders on, your pack on, and then you gotta set up your pole. You gotta tie a bunch of flies on, you gotta put weight on there, you put an indicator on there, and it, it takes a very long time, and finally you get down, and what the guide does is he gets your rod set up, your rig set up, he gets everything outfitted the right way, he takes you down to the very perfect spot, and then you begin to cast and catch fish. And the most amazing thing happened when I went by myself, I caught nothing. We didn't even get any bites where I was by myself. And then when I went with him, he set everything up. He took me to the right spot, told me where to throw, and we couldn't pull the fish out fast enough. It pays to have a guide, really pays to have a guide. And when you have a guide that's able to get the conditions right, to lead you to the right spot, to tell you what to do, to show you the way, then you see the fruit. This is what the Spirit does. The Spirit is a pointer. The Spirit is like a compass, and you have one pole, and you have the Spirit who is guiding you towards that pole. He is the most unassuming of the Trinity because the Spirit lives to bring glory to the Son and to the Father. He lives to bring your heart and your life in line with what God's calling you to do. And Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. I'm sending help. I'm sending the Helper. So Jesus wraps this up with his disciples, and this long dialogue that we'll talk about uh, in the coming weeks, he says, I've got a few things I want you to know. I'm going to prepare a place, it's the only way to get there is through me, and until that time, I'm sending God to be with you. I want to read you this passage as Becca comes back up to lead us in worship from chapter 15. In chapter 15, the disciples are still puzzled. And they're saying, this is, this is still not making sense. And he's telling them about the Holy Spirit. And one of the disciples says, but how, how is it possible that you're going to be the only way, but then when you return, everybody's not going to want to follow you? How is it possible that you could show yourself to the whole world, but only certain people follow you? And he says, well, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And if you do that, my Father will love you. And my Father and I are coming to dwell with you. See, Jesus didn't just leave heaven to come down and die on the cross. He and his Father and the Holy Spirit have come that if you love him, the only thing you ever have to do is confess your sins to him, fall upon him, know that he did what you could never do, and he and his Father and the Spirit have come to bring you safely to the place where you can be with him forever. So don't let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Even Jesus' death, was turned into something that is glorious and good if god is on our side what could man possibly do to us do not let your hearts be troubled believe in god believe also in me let me pray father we thank you for this assurance that though we could never do it on our own because we trust in you we know where we're going and because of your spirit we know how to get there So, Father, this morning I pray that as we listen to your word, as we sing, as we pray, as we gather together, you would use every bit of this service to equip us to follow you more closely. Father, I ask that we would be so fixed on what you're doing in our lives that we wouldn't be troubled, we wouldn't be afraid, we wouldn't lose a step in following you, but that we would trust you, that you know us, you have our good in mind. Father, I pray that you would guide us so that we might come safely into your kingdom to be with you forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.